Hello, and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where a current philosophy major, that's me, and his former high school philosophy teacher, that's me, discuss a variety of philosophical topics, review famous philosophy quotes, and so much more towards the purpose of living a good life. Welcome to episode three, Mr. Parsons. How are you doing today? Oh, thank you, Andrew. I'm doing very well. It is a beautiful Sunday morning. The sun is shining outside my window. And uh, I do have some exciting news uh, oh. after, after yes, after decades of, of development, I am finally an adult. <laughs> it's true. Uh, last week, we purchased a new back door and had it installed. Normally, I would have been annoyed that I'd spent so much money on such a thing that's so practical instead of like buying a new PS5 or something. <laughs> but, uh, but this new back door is... Uh, it's just so so satisfying to look out into the backyard from. <laughs> so I guess I guess that means finally I, I made it. I am now I'm now an adult. That's so, so funny. <laughs> oh yes. Well, Ender, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. I just just finished up moving up into college and am, am getting used to being here instead of at home. So it's pretty fun. I have a great view overlooking Houston, and so it's a. It's a nice place to be right now. Oh, does your uh, does your view like does it look towards downtown or towards Herman Park or? I'm about I would say I'm about a three hundred feet right in front of the medical center, so I'm looking all over all of those nice hospitals over there. All right, a nice urban sprawl. I know it's a it's it's a quite a turn from from back home. <laughs> right, and I guess you have all those beautiful live oaks just outside your window too. I know it's gorgeous. Awesome. All right. Well, what have you been reading since we last talked? Well, it's changed tremendously. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so of course, I'm still reading Seneca because uh, I'm reading those with my breakfast. I did want to bring up a quote, by the way, uh, sure. from his very first letter. So last episode's uh, quote that we rated was Blaise Pascal's quote that said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly alone in a room. Uh, letter two from Seneca, which was the first letter in this particular edition, uh, says, To my way of thinking is a better proof of a well-ordered mind than a man's ability to stop just where he is and pass some time alone in his own company. Wow. So kind of like, oh, it's very similar. It's not quite the same, but it's a similar. bit of plagiarism, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right, the old Blaze. Probably read some past. Uh, probably read some Seneca and was was very excited about it. But uh, I thought that was That's cool. Funny. So I'm still reading Seneca, um, and then uh, I've begun a biography on Ralph Waldo Emerson. Oh wow, that's right up yeah. your alley. It is. Uh, it's called "The Mind on Fire" by Robert Richardson Jr., who just passed away last year, which is one of the reasons I I bought the book. But it is a very dense. Biography. It's about six hundred pages, and oh. uh, but but I'm about a about a quarter of the way through it. But I'm really enjoying it. It's really wonderfully written. You know, I always love love those long biographies for some reason. I think think they're really cool. Well, you know, it all comes down to the writing, of course. Um, right. Some some biographies can be horrifically dry, That's true. That's um, but with a good author, true. the good author, you know, can really interject some life into it. Yeah. 
Um, and then the last one I'm in is William James's Varieties of Religious Experience, which mm. is a lecture he gave in Scotland in the early, I want to say 1901. Um, but William James, of course, American prag- pragmatist. This book goes very well with the course I teach with, with, uh, with philosophy of religion. But, uh, but I'm reading this along with some, uh, some friends, other friends who are into philosophy, and we discuss like a lecture once a month. So kind of slowly making my way through that. So that's my three books at the moment. That sounds really cool. All of those books sound really good. I'll have to check them out. Yeah, it's good stuff. How about you? So I'm mostly reading stuff for school now. Um, I'm not going to include any of those little dinky uh, pamphlets that we get or, or a few pages. But So the two big books, I guess, that I'm reading is one is called uh, A History of Rome by Livy. Mm-hmm. It's very basic. I, or I, I guess it's not basic. It's just, you know, historical accounts of the beginning of Rome. I'm really enjoying it. It's uh, it's kind of dense, but it's cool too, uh, with all those myths and and stuff. And then the second book that I'm reading is uh, Protagoras and Mino or Mino Collection by Plato. We're reading that in one of my classes. We just finished the Protagoras, or I just finished that one yesterday. I I really enjoy it. I I know. I mean, I send you all those quotes all the time that I find out of it. Uh, Socrates is just so funny to me. <laughs> yeah, what's uh, what's particularly enjoyable about all that? I don't know. It's just Socrates is such he's such an ironic guy. You know, he he can dance around people's arguments, and then he's always he's always questioning, but he never cares. He's not trying to embarrass anyone, I think, but he's always just trying to go for the truth and. He's always trying to see, he seems like he's always trying to have a little bit of fun with the person, even if they don't really want to have fun back and always seems to annoy someone in the process too, which is always funny. <laughs> well, if you're not having a little fun while you're doing a philosophy, then you're probably doing it the wrong way. <laughs> I think Socrates would definitely agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, all right. Yeah, I figured your, your reading list right now would probably be um, very school oriented. Yes, yes. Maybe I'll be able to sneak uh, a fun one in in the, in the next few weeks, but right now it's a little basic. Okay, well, you have to keep us updated. Yeah, Liv, I've never read Livy's history, but I'm, I'm familiar with the title. Right, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. So our main topic for today is going to be uh, a basic introduction to Aristotle. He's one of the most preeminent philosophers of all time and has had a great deal of influence in pretty much everything in the entire world. So, Mr. Parsons, do you want to give a little bit of historical background of Aristotle before we dive into his philosophical beliefs? Sure, I don't have a lot, but we'll just kind of put him on the timeline. He is the he was the student of Plato, so uh, they certainly knew each other and were contemporaries of each other. Aristotle lived in the 4th century, so from 384 to 322 BC. His father was a physician, and that's going to be a very important thing with what we talk about today. I'm sure that will become evident as to why that's so important. But his father is a physician. He did end up founding a school of philosophy. Uh, Of course, Plato had his school, the Academy. Aristotle forms his own school called the Lyceum. And then I guess the last thing to say about Aristotle, just historically, is that 
He's really kind of at the end of the era of what we might consider classical Greece. He is he is the tutor of Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great uh, goes off and conquers the Persian Empire and then a bit of Egypt, and uh, and and really just reorders the entire world as as the Greeks knew it, and uh, and ushered in an era called the the Hel- Hellenism, uh, the Hellenistic era. And so out of the Hellenistic era, you do have a couple other schools of philosophy like Epicureanism, uh, Cynicism, Stoicism, and and those kind of leave behind uh, Plato and Aristotle to to an extent. Um, So so he really is kind of there at the end of the the classical age of of certainly Athens, but maybe Greece. Right. So I think the... Aristotle, all of his works really revolve around this idea, this emphasis on reason. And you might be kind of thinking back to our last episode on Plato and saying, well, you know, uh, Aristotle must have got this from Plato. And that's probably certainly true to some extent. But Aristotle changes it up. Uh, his The inf- amount of things that he believes reason can, I guess, show to the mind, show to the person is, is a lot more complete. Aristotle believes that everything pretty much can be known by using your reason well, by reasoning well. Um, and he believes that you can find truth just by reasoning alone. Do you want to say anything else on that, Mr. Parsons? Yeah, I think the thing that I really like about Plato and Aristotle as, as philosophers is they are such, for me, a good example of what philosophy should be. Uh, they're good interlocutors for each other. Uh, Plato has a, a, a very big theory about forms and ideas and, and idealism and all those things. And Aristotle comes along after him and, and interacts with that and forms his own opinions about that, which are very different, but yet in some ways very complementary of, of Plato. And so it's this idea of the development of philosophy, moving philosophy forward, that, uh, that I appreciate uh, about the two of them. Both of them certainly were big advocates of reason. My cat is crying in the background. Can you hear him? <laughs> I can, yes. Good grief. I'm going to have to... Ah, all right, hang on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> he, like, he wants in here so badly. He wants to engage with philosophy. I guess so. One of our dogs, Moe's, is like, she's our old dog. She's just sitting here in the chair next to me, like taking a nap. Um, James, he's our little boy. He's like four. He's just out Aww. there crying away. Okay, so we were talking about the role of reason. <laughs> and so for both Plato and Aristotle, reason reigns supreme. For Plato, uh, reason helps him understand the ideal forms that are outside. Uh, and, and it's no surprise, I guess, that Plato... Plato's background was in mathematics, uh, whereas Aristotle's, like I said earlier, was was in was in science and, and physician. Uh, a, a mathematician, of course, will think of things in a more abstract way. Uh, you arrive at those through reason, of course. Yeah. Um, but Aristotle, be, growing up in a in, in a physician's world, also uses his reason to deduce truth, but it comes from a more a more tangible way uh, than Plato goes about it. But for both of them, yes reason reigns supreme. Yeah. So I think if we kind of reflect back on last week of episodes with the theory of forms, 
Aristotle has this idea, I, I believe it's either called the first principle or fir- first criterion, uh, that he lays out in his Metaphysics that it's a, it's a book called The Metaphysics, not, mm-hmm. I guess, his Metaphysics. But anyway, um, he, he lays out this idea really well. He, I think he contrasts Plato's forms in that book too, actually. I, there's just a quote from that book that I, I just, I think it sums up his view really well. I, I can't find it, but I believe it is all men by nature desire to know. And this this criterion is that you have the ability to know all things just by reasoning about them. And he believes that the way that you can obtain knowledge or truth about something is can you use your reason to kind of, I would say, latch on to this first principle of a of of something of anything anything really physical because that's that's what he wants to know right like uh you're saying he's a physician and he does spend a lot of time in many of his works i guess some people would call him the first real scientist is i think i i think we talked about that before right yes yes yeah his categorization systems um of nature and everything yeah i think that's i i'm not sure i'm not a i'm not a science guy but i think some aspects of his work are still used in like biology and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, his evolution kind of ideas are thrown out a little bit. But, uh, but one example that I guess I have of how he uses his reason to get real truth about an object. I don't know if this will make sense. But say that like I, I go outside and I want to find the first principle of, of my car. So I, I go outside I'm observing it. I'm looking at it. I can tell it's an SUV, that it's tan. It has four wheels. It, it has all of these physical properties, which I can observe and make judgments about. And I've observed these, you know, these temporal features with my senses, but my real knowledge about my car isn't, isn't necessarily from what I have observed, right? It's about I mean, that is really important. That's giving me characteristics about this this, this car. But uh, the first principle, kind of in a similar way to Plato's forms, it's it's something like carness, which is found in, in every single car. I don't know if that really connects to what we're talking about that well. No. No, that's a perfect example, Andrew. Yeah, so this is one of the big differences between Aristotle and Plato and why we're covering both of these philosophers so early in the podcast is really their viewpoints are, are fundamentally different, but yet so important to our understanding. I mean, it's really epistemic, uh, or not epistemic, but uh, deals yeah. with epistemology. That, uh, that you know, Plato believes that we can arrive at knowledge through abstract thought and, and, uh, and, and, and reasoning in that way, whereas Aristotle believes we can arrive at knowledge through our experience, through, through our senses. Whereas Plato was very skeptical of his senses, believed that senses, of course, could uh, right. could deceive him or could deceive us. Whereas Aristotle's like, no, uh, I mean the the direct way to knowledge is through our senses. That is that is the pathway to knowledge. Um, and so, you know, when you talk about the car, you know, for, so if we're going to talk about th- this SUV, you know, Plato would have said. Yes, there is an ideal form of a SUV somewhere out there in the world of forms. And so we know within our soul when we see an SUV that it connects with this world of forms that we we understand that this is what an SUV is. Whereas Aristotle 
says the, uh, the, the, the form is, there is such a thing as an ideal form, but it exists in the thing itself. We don't have to appeal to some uh, alternate world out there uh, where the perfect thing exists. The, the form of the SUV is in the form, is in the SUV itself, just like we might say, you know, the form of a dog is within the dog itself. We know there's many varieties of dogs, species of dogs. But when we see a dog, the reason we know it's a dog is because it has a certain dogness that is in the dog itself, as opposed to some world of ideas where a perfect dog exists and that is somehow baked within our Right. Soul. I think we talked about it kind of last week about how Plato was very skeptical about your senses, just like you were talking about. He said, like, they're, they're literally, they're just meant to, meant to be able to deceive us and we can't really gain any real knowledge about things. But I think Aristotle, and, and probably rightly so, I mean, I think he talks about, um, he's like, hold up, Plato, wh- where are you getting this world of forms from? Like, you're, you're believing in the, your reasoning and all of this, but where did you pull, you know, where did you pull this out from? And Aristotle is much more focused on the physical world and using reason to devolve truth from the physical world around him only, right? Pretty much only just using reason. Yeah, I think he was, he was much more, Aristotle was much more involved in what we might call the here and now. Uh, not that Plato wasn't entirely, but Plato did have this whole uh, idealistic idea. And there's nothing really wrong with ide- ideals. Like, you know, uh, of course you want to be the ideal student or the ideal husband or the ideal teacher. There's nothing wrong with appealing to that. But I think Aristotle was more like the, the ideal emerges from the doing and and you become that ideal rather than seeking this one perfect ideal that you think all things must be. I think Aristotle would say that's not even really realistic. Uh, There might be multiple ideals for a teacher. There might be multiple ideals for a student. There's probably not just one ideal. And so in that through experience, we become those things rather than, than than trying to become the ideal that's out there in the abstract world somewhere. Aristotle, I just find him really, really interesting because this is this is just the like the foundation of literally everything he does. It doesn't matter if it's biology. You know, he did he he did so much. He's he has more work surviving than I think any of those ancient philosophers. I could be wrong about that, but his stuff was very well preserved. And we know that he he writes on a lot of a lot of things. He writes about metaphysics, he writes about ethics, he writes about biology, writes about um the soul. It's crazy. It spans spans through all of these fields of philosophy. He writes about beauty. He writes about Greek tragedy. Even I mean, like, come on. And the really interesting thing, though, is it's all stems from this idea of reason. Like that's the foundation of his life, which is, I guess, what a good philosopher does. But I think it's just really funny because you can see so many parallels in his work with everything that he does. It, it seems like it's all connected. Kind of sound like I'm I'm a crazy person right now, but. Just very, I love Aristotle. He's really cool. 
Oh, I mean, there's a reason he's, um, you know, considered one of the one of the founders, if you will, of philosophy. You know, back when I taught world history uh, years ago, you know, you as a historian, you always kind of want to avoid or at least question like great man history. But you know, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle—I mean, there were philosophers before them, very interesting philosophers. Uh, but but those three are always cited as like the the foundation of philosophy, uh, and and there's a reason for that. Even though Plato and Aristotle disagreed on quite a lot of things, uh, both of them were incredibly prolific and entire, almost entirely foundational uh, for Western philosophy. I, I can't remember who said it, but you know, one contemporary philosopher said that you know all, all of philosophy is but a footnote to Plato. Uh, and I think Aristotle certainly is in that same sort of category. I, I certainly agree. And you're making me think of that, the School of Athens painting by, is it Raphael? Yes, yes. I remember we talked about it in class way back, you know, way back then. Uh, but I, I don't think I appreciate it as much. Uh, can you explain a little bit about that? Because I, I always thought that was really cool when I think back on it. Oh, absolutely. And we'll put this picture up on the website for listeners to access. Uh, but the Skull of Athens is a, is a Renaissance painting by uh, the painter Raphael. It's in the Vatican. But it is a, uh, it's an enormous painting. with It's just full of your, your greatest hits of, uh, of, of classical Greece. Uh, you know, uh, Pythagoras is there. Uh, Aristophanes is in there. So, you know, just, just so many... Um, but at the center of it all, of course, you know, perspective was a big deal during the Renaissance. At the center of it all is, is a very old Plato and a, a very young Aristotle. And they're standing together. And Plato is pointing his finger up in the air. And Aristotle's next to him. I, I, I want to say he he's is. even looking at Plato. He's like, what are you talking about? And, uh, and, and he's pointing his hand towards the ground. And this was Raphael's uh, attempt to through this painting without using words show the difference of these two foundational philosophers that that Plato's ideas were constantly in the abstract realm up in the air whereas Aristotle's was just very grounded in the here and now um, you know Arist uh, Plato was thinking about things in the ether while Aristotle was digging around in the dirt with his hands uh, trying to categorize insects and things like that so, so that, that painting, you know, does an excellent job of showing the, the difference of these two philosophers without really saying anything. And I think something also it does really well is shows these, this branch of philosophy that stems from these two. Uh, on one hand, I guess the, the, left, the left hand, it would be the, the rational school of philosophy, the, the rationalists, um, which is... Uh, Plato and, and Socrates' like school uh, and, and their influence on all of these philosophers that you can see all over on that side. And then on the right side where Aristotle is, it's all the empiricists, empiricists being you know exactly what you just said. And I just think that's really cool. It shows the, the impact that these two men had on philosophy as a whole. And it, it really exists to this day, I would say, I mean, certainly there's probably more schools, but exactly like you said, it all stems from those two guys. And I have an interesting fact tidbit uh, for you. Do you know what book? Um, do you know what book Aristotle's holding? Oh, I don't. 
it's it's uh, his ethics, his Nicomachean ethics. You can you can kind of see the title in, in the corner of the book. Is that right? Yeah, it's really cool. I when I I found that up about two weeks ago, and I was like mind blown. <laughs> oh, that's a really great fact. I didn't I did not know that. Uh, that's kind of a nice segue into one of the other things we we're going to talk about with with Aristotle. But but let me let me just say. Um, I, I've not I've not traveled to a lot of places, but six years ago I, I had an opportunity to go to Italy, and uh, and 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 so we went to the Vatican. And I was always familiar with the School of Athens painting, uh, saw it you know hundreds of times on the internet or whatever. Uh, but to stand in that room and actually see the thing was a tremendously emotional experience. That was. Uh, that was really cool. I mean, it's big. It's a big painting. And of course, you know, Vatican, like it's just crammed with uh, tourists and stuff. Uh, but for whatever reason, when I got to that particular room with that painting, which is a fresco, it's on the wall. Like it, it's painted right. on the right. wall. Um, you know, there were there were maybe 10 or 12 people in the room at the time. And so I, I kind of got to have not an alone moment with that with that painting, but compared to other parts of the gallery we went through, I mean, there were times we were shoulder to shoulder with people. Um, and so it was just, it was just a really, really special, uh, special moment in my life. So that's my, uh, that's my school of Athens story. That sounds really cool. I, I hope that when I get around, hopefully I'll get there one day and hopefully that'll still be around. Oh, you will. You will. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. So do you want to talk about the ethics for a little bit uh, and then the golden mean? Yeah, sure. So, so one of the things we want to accomplish with this podcast, of course, is to, is to help not only ourselves, but others, uh, listeners to, to live a, a better life. And of course, part of that comes from ethics and morality, but part of that comes from just philosophy overall, uh, knowing yourself and, and knowing the world around you. And so whether that's arriving at knowledge through, uh, through reason as as Plato does, or whether that's um, arriving at it through your empiricism, your sensory perceptions, as, as Aristotle does. One of the one of the things that is foundational again with ethics from Aristotle is the idea of the golden mean. Now, Aristotle identified twelve virtues. And we're not going to spend time talking about all of those right now. We will probably have a series arc when we do. Uh, I, I hope we. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Great... We'll, we'll do a series arc where we do morality and ethics, and certainly we'll talk in depth about Aristotelian uh, ethics. But uh, but sort of a, a a big idea that I think is very helpful to a lot of people is, is the idea of the golden mean. And so when it comes to virtues and behavior, for lack of a better term. If you take one of these virtues, for instance, courage is one of the one of the virtues. Aristotle says, in order to live a a good life, right, a life of of peace, um, we should attempt to find the golden mean, like the sweet spot, if you will, of courage. In other words, there's extremes either direction. So, an extreme of courage, one direction might be rashness, right, like rushing into something without giving a lot of thought to it. Um, and then the other extreme of courage could be cowardice, uh, not being brave enough to engage with whatever is requiring courage of you. And so, you know, Aristotle says, with your virtues, try to find that middle spot between the two extremes. 
Uh, w- one last one would be uh, the virtue of self-control, which is kind of what the golden mean is to begin with. But like the extremes of self-control, you know, one end is impulsiveness. You know, when you do things without really giving a lot of thought to it. Uh, but the other, uh, the other end of that extreme would be indecisiveness, uh, never coming to a decision about something. So finding the golden mean for that is, is self-control, uh, where we use and apply our, our reason to, uh, to come to a, a, a well-reasoned decision. So that's, that's very basically the, the idea of the golden mean and, and a pretty foundational thing in terms of, of ethics. Yep. That's in Nicomachean ethics. And at that point, just for a little bit of context, he's just came up with these virtues. And then the reason that he's giving these virtues and, and giving a direction on how to try to get there is he thinks that you have to be deliberately choosing them in order to be virtuous. That's the entire goal for Aristotle. That's why he's giving out these virtues. I mean, that's kind of obvious. The reason that he's laying these out, he's giving you this instruction to go for this golden mean is so that you can be intentionally living in a virtuous state, basically. And so on one hand, like you were saying, there's the advice of deficiency. Uh, that, that would be the cowardice kind of side. And then, so that's if you're not courageous enough. Um, on the other hand of that, it's the vice of excess. If you are too courageous, you're rash. So that's, that's just a little bit of, of context. I mean, I, I, we'll go into more on that in, in the episode where we really hit this hard. But I think that an objection that I raised to my mind when I was first thinking about this, uh, that certainly answered when thinking about the golden mean, would be, you know, how do you, like if, if I was in a state of being rash, I might consider myself being co- really courageous, right? Um, and if I was being in a state of cowardice, I might be like, well, I'm being courageous, but I'm not being too rash. I'm, I'm being courageous just enough. So how would we know if we were just, you know, how would we know that we're actually being courageous? How do we know we're actually in the middle? And Aristotle answers this very common objection, I think, by just, by just by using that golden mean. He says that, you don't measure yourself by being courageous because that's a really abstract kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, you measure yourself by trying to be in the middle of those two extremes, which is a really cool idea. Just just a little bit of context with the golden mean. It is golden and it is a mean for a reason. <laughs> so in order to to really hit that golden mean, you need to be knowledgeable about rashness and cowardice. Yes, yes. That's... Um, that's one of his key points. You can't have, you can't just be courageous without being knowledgeable. You have to be both. For instance, if I ran into like a, a gunfight or if I was in a war, I think he might use this example or someone else does. If I charged into battle without any support facing an army, like a really large army, he would say, you know, Andrew, you're not being courageous. You're being really dumb, <laughs> you know, uh, so you have to you have to be knowledgeable. You have to use your reason to get to this place of uh, virtuous. You have to be knowledgeable and, and use your reason to get to this place of courage and virtue. 
The thing I like about this entire idea is that it is something that is within you that you can discern for yourself, right? There, I mean, yes, uh, cultivating virtues takes time and practice and, and all of those things, but this is something that is innate within you, the ability to reason, and through that reason, uh, you're able to bring yourself into uh, a, a more right relationship with yourself and the world around you uh, by living virtuously and not appealing to these or not falling to these extremes. It's really cool. And I think that something that I often think about when I read these ancient philosophers, they believe, you know, philosophy will bring you to enlightenment or the truth or living a good life, right? So with Aristotle, it's cool because you don't need to be you don't really need to be taught philosophy. You don't have to go to a rich school. You don't have to have a rich teacher. Theoretically, you can discern all of this information that Aristotle is, is considering, and he's come by using your reason and stumbling upon it and living a good life just by that. All right, and just one last thing I wanted to say about Plato and Aristotle and their particular camps, if you will, uh, rationalism and empiricism. The reason this is so foundational for the future of uh, philosophy and for thought in general, especially in the West, is it it essentially creates two camps, right? Uh, You have the rationalist. And if you look at rationalists down the line, you get people like Rene Descartes or Immanuel Kant or Leibniz, um, who, who... adhere to this idea of rationalism um, and how that can bring us truth, because that's what both Aristotle and Plato are after. How do we arrive at truth? Uh, Whereas, uh, oh, and with Plato, you know, this idea that there is some uh, a priori or uh, innate ideas that are within us that come to our soul, like baked into our soul from the world of forms, uh, that, that we are born with this knowledge, whereas you have the other side, which is the empiricists uh, that that would side with Aristotle, whereas Aristotle's like, no, there's nothing baked into our souls in terms of knowledge about the world. We learn about the world around us through empiricism, through our sensory perception, through experience. And you have future philosophers like John Locke, uh, Berkeley, uh, David Hume, who claim that all knowledge, all truth really comes from experience. And, and honestly, we're still having these conversations you know, 2000 years later uh, about which one of these really ultimately brings us truth. And, and I think for me anyway, I'd be curious what you think, Andrew. I think for me anyway, it, it's kind of a combination of both. Uh, I, I'm not really a hundred percent in either one of those camps. I think they're both really valid ways to come to uh, knowledge and understanding. Uh, but, 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 you know, when you're talking about foundational stuff, uh, I, I think that's, you know, an important thing to point out with these two philosophers. What do you think, Andrew? Do do you lean uh, more empiricist or more rationalist? You know, honestly, I, I would say I agree probably more with you or, or something like Kant where he tries to, tries to combine. I, I don't know if he tries to combine them, but he, he, he thinks that there might be a place for both. Um, and I would say that I, I agree with you in that respect. I, but it is certainly really interesting that, even, uh, you know, in that Einstein book that I read a few weeks ago, he's talking about how much the empirical view from Aristotle and Hume was influencing him in his search for theory of relativity. So that's just an example of how prevalent, you know, <laughs> all of this is still today. All right. That's cool. 
All right. Well, I think I don't think we have too much more to say about this、uh, on at least a introductory level. So let's head over to the quote corner. Alrighty. So the quote for this week isn't necessarily from a famous philosopher, but I still think it is a good philosophy quote that's interesting. So it is by P. C. Hodgell, I believe that's how you pronounce her last name. But it is that which can be destroyed by the truth should be. Well, that's a that's a very strong statement. <laughs> yeah, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> Darn.、Um, yeah, it is very. Well, I go first. I don't care. <laughs> you know, when you say that, that makes me.、Uh, I was really into it when I first heard it, but now you're. You're making me question that, so maybe I'll I'll let you go first and reconsider my ideas. Well, when I first read it,、um, you know, I was like, "Heck yeah!" Yeah, that's how I felt. <laughs> totally behind that. Let's destroy everything that you know isn't truth. But then, gosh, you know, it's my inner Kierkegaard or something was like, "Oh, but wait a minute! What about subjective truth? You know, <laughs> what?" When this author says,、uh, "You know, truth should be which that which can be destroyed by truth should be,"、uh, my immediate question is, "Well, so what constitutes truth?"、Mm. Yeah, that's a good question, and I'm I know for a hundred percent fact we will be covering truth very carefully later <laughs> later on because that's a that's a whole topic of its own. Oh, indeed, but. No, you were just making me think of、um, this. Might be a little bit controversial.、Uh, I don't know. I'm going to say it anyway. Let's do it. Good controversial. <laughs> But、um, you know, some I'm going to say some religious practices. You know,、uh, I am religious, but I think that、um, religion does play a certain aspect in culture and morality. And perhaps if there was something, you know. Some scientific thing that ever、uh, disproved religion on a wide scale. I know we'll be talking about this question too later on too, but I guess it would be a question:、uh, should should that happen? Just because you know, even not looking at Christianity, but faiths all throughout history, from the Egyptian belief in their gods,、uh, the Zoroastrians, even in、uh, Eastern religions too, you know. Uh, or, or in South America, the 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 role that religion played in those societies was so large, and how it impacted their conception of morals and morality, and how to be a good person. If, if you just kind of yank that down、uh, and destroy it, their their truth on how to see the world, that would really cause a lot of harm to their society. And I don't know if that harm would be would be、uh, not beneficial. Yeah, it absolutely would. And you know, when you brought up religion, it, it makes me think to the book I mentioned earlier,、uh, William James's Varieties of Religious Experience.、Uh, you know, William James,、uh, aside from a philosopher, was a、uh, is kind of considered the, the the father of American psychology.、Yeah. Uh, so he was he was you know a quasi physician as well, and, and knew a great deal about science.、Um, and so one of his big questions. And why he's writing these lectures about religious experience is, you know, how do we square that with the new science that's coming out in the latter 19th century? Certainly connected with Darwinism and, and other aspects, is like, 
you know, we're beginning to understand brain chemistry and what causes emotions and things like that. And, you know, he, he talks about uh, people who have neurotic um, episodes uh, or, or, uh, or something like epilepsy or something, you know, a, a lot of famous religious figures, uh, people believe, you know, it was, it was believed that Joan of Arc had epilepsy. It was believed that St. Paul uh, had epilepsy and, and that these triggered a religious experience. And so, you know, James's question is like, well, does that mean that it's not a religious experience? Mm-hmm. Because now we have a medical uh, materialist explanation for it. D- does that mean St. Paul's truth was not? <laughs> uh, yeah. That's an interesting question. We definitely should cover that in the future, by the way. <laughs> oh, we'll cover it. You know, I'm I sure. keep thinking these series arcs we need to do. I know, I know. Uh, yeah, we'll definitely do a series arc on philosophy of religion for sure. Yeah. You know, with this quote too, I also think of a, a group that uh, that developed about 20 years after James gave this lecture, which was the Logical Positivists. Mm, right. And who uh, Wittgenstein was an early member of. Uh, you know, their whole goal was like anything that, that cannot be objectively, you know, proven or whatever through language just should be tossed out. Right. Uh, just, just a super hard line on, uh, on, on objectivism. Um, and the, the Vienna circle was, was part of that, you know, but then after world war two, the existentialists come along and say, no phenomenology, uh, you know, experience, uh, it does have value. And I don't know. So all, all that to say, I guess with this particular quote, yes, I agree. If anything is, is not truthful, uh, like we should toss it out. Um, yeah. but, but the work is trying to figure out exactly what truth is. I mean, there are certainly things that are not true, but each thing can have more than one truth. Right. I agree. So what are you going to, how are you going to end up rating this on our one to one to five scale? Well, without any context surrounding it, uh, just taking it on its own. uh, I'm giving this a, a hard three. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I, I like the bombastic uh, language that the that the author is using. Um, uh, but uh, who knows? Maybe uh, Hodgel uh, does carry on uh, about the context of of different types of truths. But um, but if this person comes from the the school of logical positivism, I mean, you're lucky they're getting a three. <laughs> no, I'm going to go a little more controversial than you and give it a two. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe it's just for kicks. So that, thank you for coming to the Quote Corner. We appreciate it. All right, everyone. That's going to be it for today for this episode. We'd really love it if you'd leave a positive review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when the next episode drops and giving us a positive review really really helps out uh, the podcast too and please help someone out of their sad state of affairs by passing on open door philosophy to your friends family members cousins anybody you think will get a good time out of it We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to tell us what you think of the show or you have a philosophy quote that you'd like for us to rate, uh, please email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com. You can follow all the philosophy on Twitter and on Instagram at opendoorphilosophy. 
and our website, opendoorphilosophy.com, where you can find many things about the show, including our very, very special book list that we mentioned near the beginning of the episodes. You can find all our previous books and links to them as well, along with uh, nifty pictures of the cover I've heard too. That's right. Okay. Well, everyone, thank you for listening. Andrew, once again, thanks for potting with me. We'll see you next time. And remember, when your life seems to be in need of some philosophy, the door is always open.